You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. This is part one of four panels forming part of Assemble Paper's Living Closer Together Symposium, a series of panel sessions exploring the intersection between the way we experience, design, and plan for a lively and equitable city. This is panel one, New Pathways to Affordable Housing. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for coming this morning. My name is Kat McGowan. I'm the assistant editor of Assemble Papers. Um, before we start proceedings today, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're gathered here on the traditional lands of the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd also like to acknowledge that uh, sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. So I think this is pretty encouraging uh, to see <laughs> such an amazing turnout on this soggy uh, Melbourne morning. Um, it's very encouraging to see so many people who are interested in exploring the ways that we can perhaps make cities like ours, like Melbourne, more livable and um, how we've come to the position that we're in now and also what we can do uh, going forward to make our city more equitable for and welcoming to everyone. Um, the theme of the day is living closer together. And I think it's come at a particularly pertinent time. Uh, just yesterday in The Guardian, I read an article um, explaining that a, a minister, oh, sorry, a political party is proposing to bring in a minister for loneliness, um, which might sound like a bit of a far-fetched idea, but in January, uh, Theresa May in the UK actually appointed loneliness uh, as a portfolio to one of her ministers. So... It's, it's an interesting question. Countries like Australia and the UK, we're living in times of unprecedented economic wealth, but it seems like perhaps we've forgotten something. Perhaps even how much we need each other and how much we can benefit when we're living in societies that are equitable and inclusive for all. So the question is, what do we need to do differently? What needs to change? So... Without further ado, <laughs> um, I would like to introduce the first panel. So the first, <laughs> sorry, the first panel for today uh, will be moderated by our editor, Jana Perkovic, and we'll be looking at new pathways to affordable home ownership. So thank you very much uh, for coming today. We hope you enjoy and learn something new. Um, and if you've got any questions throughout the day, um, you can come up to myself or Yana or um, Abby up the back. She's wearing a checked coat. But, yeah, enjoy. Um, hello. Uh, thank you, Kat. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here on uh, such a rainy day. Um, we are going to be talking about affordable housing and new pathways to getting it um, for the next hour or so. Um, we will have about 45 minutes of talking and then about 15 minutes for questions. But in order to make this more dialogical and conversational, if a question comes up while we're talking, please just raise your hand. We'll stop. Um, you'll have the opportunity to um, uh, contribute to the conversation. So um, today with me, we've got Dr. Andrea Sharam. Um, senior lecturer at the School of Property, Construction and Project Management at RMIT University, um, whose work has been about uh, housing as a matching market and who has done some incredibly important research on homelessness. 
Um, then Andy Fergus, urban designer at the City of Melbourne, co-director of Melbourne Archie Tours, and um, a, a teacher at the Melbourne School of Design in the Masters of Architecture program. Uh, Andy's primary role comprises design negotiation on major projects, and uh, he leads the development of design excellence policy in central Melbourne. Uh, Dave Martin is the co-founder of the Sociable Weaver Group, um, a family of businesses to create positive impact across the built environment. Um, and finally, Ben Keck, uh, Director of Fieldwork Architecture Practice and also Strategy Director of Assemble, a residential property developer focused on improving housing affordability, as well as co-founder of Assemble Papers, which I edit. So um, thank you all very much for being here so early on a Saturday night with so many other things to do. So. Melbourne is a fantastic city to live, as we all know, and uh, it's got very few problems. But housing affordability is certainly a problem, if not the problem. Why are we performing so badly in providing housing for all? What are we doing wrong? What could we be doing better? What are we already doing better, and how can we scale it up? Um, and what are the intelligent, viable alternatives we have to a 100% speculative housing market? Maybe I'll start with Andrea, because she's the one person here who has a PhD in this topic. <laughs> um, so, Andrea, you look at the housing market, you look at market segmentation, you look at social housing, market housing, and so on. Is it bad? Why is, is it? We talk about Melbourne being this incredible city to live in, the most livable city in the world, but then we also talk about how we're having a housing crisis. What is actually going on? Good morning. I think you are a bunch of diehards. Good on you. Um, we have a, an issue with housing affordability and, of course, as Andy was whispering into my ear there, we need to define what we mean by affordability in the context. And, of course, it's, uh, the answer to that question is very, very complex. You know, it depends on the household, the household structure, the income, how many members are in there, what their needs are. It depends on location, and that depends on the market context. So all those things come together, and what that means is a solution we might think is good for in a city, Melbourne, may not be the same solution that's required for Tarnit, for example. So it is actually quite difficult for policymakers to shape policies to ensure that the affordability crisis doesn't deepen. But we have a crisis, and I always say to people, it is a man-made crisis. It's not something that just somehow is like the hand of God that's come down on us. It's the result of policies, and largely the result of policies, but also economic change. So land values are a critical issue here. In a city, land has become so much more valuable than it was 30 years ago because of the, the structure of the economy now. You know, we used to have a manufacturing economy where jobs were dispersed very widely across the metropolitan region and that gave people very broad access to affordable housing. The economy, since the tariffs went down, shifted to here where the majority of jobs are created within the CBD. So that's in, created intense competition for residences near those jobs with happens to also be where we have beautiful amenities, like here in this garden, 
good public transport, good services. So that's also intensifying the competition. So the further out from the city you get, the lower house prices are. It, 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 it's, um, the graph just goes shoo, like that. And of course land prices are cheaper out there, you can get cheaper housing out there. Detached housing is a contract market that helps suppress prices there. If we want to live here in higher density, multi-res traditionally has required a developer and it's a very speculative market. Can you talk a little bit more about that? A lot of your work is about apartments specifically. We have had this rise in the construction of apartment buildings in Melbourne uh, over the past 10 years or so, but it hasn't really resulted in what we would have perhaps expected to see. It hasn't resulted in greater affordability, it hasn't resulted in greater design, and certainly hasn't resulted in tighter communities. Um, how has that happened? Why are these apartments so bad? <laughs> yes, they, they are generally quite bad. So, I mean, one of the first things to say about that is, you know, uh, apartment standards are not particularly high in Australia. Sydney has better than Melbourne, but it's still not particularly high. So developers are not forced to at least come up to a, a minimum. Well, they've got a minimum standard, but it's a very low minimum standard that they have to do. <coughs> they develop, you know, development is risky, um, but the work that I've been doing shows that, that the, the critical risk within development for multi-res is actually the settlement risk. This is you know, when you get a pre-sale, the banks need developers to get pre-sales to confirm demand for the product that they are you know, proposing to build. We, I, we call that, you know, it's, it's a matching market. They need to match with pre-sale buyers. But those buyers, the ones they match with easiest, the ones they can find easiest are investors. Investors that are incentivised through taxation, through being able to achieve capital gains within the market. Those people intending to own or occupy are much, much harder to find. And really, until quite recently, outside the luxury end of the market, the, you know, the, there wasn't actually a really big pool of people. But that intense competition I was talking about, the, the cost of buying a house has meant people are thinking about, they're happy to live in an apartment as a rental prospect, but they're really concerned about living in one, purchasing one, for very, very good reasons. I don't, I don't think they're value for money, and I think there's a lot of liabilities that are potentially there. So investors, um, and developers are matching to each other. So it becomes an investor market. The developers can then, you know, they're looking at what the market price is. Because they're investors, they're really price conscious that they can kind of keep it down a bit. They've got it, they want the margin. They have to get a particular margin. Their financiers require them to get a minimum margin on, on the deal. So they'll be looking at getting the costs down. You, when you design for investors, they don't care about amenity so much, they don't really care about quality so much. So, you know, it's like, it's two markets. We, well, in fact, while I say there is one market, it's the investor market, the owner-occupier market actually doesn't exist. And it's only mm. just coming into existence really for the, for the moderate income. There's, there's still no market there for low-income people, but for the moderate incomes, it's just coming into being. Just want to add to that, if that's all right. I think it's also really interesting to think about culturally and politically what that means. And this figure of about 80% of apartments are um, purchased by investors. I think that was higher in the city of Melbourne, closer to 85%. Um, but it changes the way we vote 
when we think about apartments. So when we think about apartments, we think about them either as a stepping stone to some other superior form of home ownership, uh, or we conceptualise them as just an investment vehicle. So when we make decisions or we think about our local councils or the state government, we're often thinking about apartments from our single houses and the impact of apartments, rather than thinking aspirationally about that future population. I think it's really interesting even to think about the city of Sydney's attitude towards apartments. I remember someone from the urban design team speaking to me a while ago and they said, well, we want high quality apartments in our city because that means we'll be able to attract the sort of people we want in our city. And they think about it very much through this kind of international competitiveness lens rather than, you know, we can't staff all the market, we need more investment housing because we just need quantity. And I think that there's a really interesting difference between the quantity, investment, jobs and growth type very abstract phenomena and thinking about it specifically in terms of the quality of the apartment in the city. Yana, can I add to that? I agree with um, both Andrea and Andy's comments there. Um, the other thing to note that the apartment market or the off-the-plan apartment market in Melbourne is quite immature. It's only been around in a meaningful form for just over 20 years. Um, and apartments only represent 4 or 5% of total dwelling stock in metropolitan Melbourne compared to Sydney, which I think is around eight or nine or even up to 10% and you know, other cities around the world where it's you know, 20, 25, 30%. So uh, apartments in Melbourne um, are a fairly, fairly immature market. And like Andrea said, um, demand for apartments over the last sort of 20 years has been you know, circa 80% from investors and the developers meeting that demand, it hasn't made sense for them uh, to invest in a better architect or better design or better quality because um, you know, they're just responding to the, the, the needs of those investors. And because we've had this property boom and property wave, those investors have been riding that wave and have been generating, you know, decent rental returns, decent capital growth, despite the fact that they're buying, you know, effectively a box in a big tower um, that's not particularly well designed or, you know, well built. Um, but I think that's, as you flagged, Andrew, that's, that's changing. The, you know, the investor demand particularly from Asia, is, is tightening. Um, and at the same time, you've got more and more owner-occupiers embracing the idea of apartment living. Um, and so, you know, a lot of projects that are now launched more so in the inner suburbs rather than the city, we're now looking at, you know, owner-occupier-focused projects or, you know, a 50-50 mix of investors and owner-occupiers and, and, and developers are starting to respond to that different composition of demand and investing more in design in, in community features and better quality building. Um, and at the same time, I think investors, even ones from overseas, are thinking, well, you know, I want to make sure I have a good return. I want to, you know, generate good capital growth, good rental returns. Does it really make sense to be buying a box in a 400-unit a tower in the city where every single apartment is largely the same? And when I decide to sell, I'll be selling uh, amongst 10 other people who are selling exactly the same apartment. Or does it make sense to invest in something that's, you know, in a smaller project, a better quality, um, better designed, where you know maybe there'll be a premium for people renting that apartment, and maybe the capital growth of that apartment will be better over time because it'll be a bit, you know, a bit more differentiated. So, um, I think things are moving in the right direction, um, uh, and and hopefully. You know, the, what investors demand and what own occupiers demand in the form of apartments is starting to converge. So, in our latest issue of Assemble Papers, we've spoken to Saskia Sassen, who is a 
researcher of globalization, and she traces how global property investment travels around the world and how it settles in certain parts of Sydney, certain parts of London, certain areas of Manhattan, and how it results in entirely empty buildings and even streets and districts. Um, and she says, well, these empty buildings are still making money to someone. They're not a failed investment by any chance. There's no um, incentive for anyone to sell them, but they completely, this sort of investment completely ruins cities. So I think the challenge for us is to make sure that this doesn't happen to Melbourne, that this remains a place that's livable for its residents rather than um, profitable to our overseas investors. Which I think brings me to um, Dave and your work, which is sort of completely at the other end of the scale. So you have been described as a mindful builder which I really like. Um, and you're founder of The Sociable Weaver as well as the CEO, correct me if I'm wrong, of uh, Small Giants Development. And I'll quote the Small Giants website. I'm very inspired by Dave's work. Um, Our intention is to use the built environment to contribute to the world in a meaningful way and to show how humans can live in harmony with nature and experience profound individual and social flourishing. Our intention is sincere and we hope to really shift the way people live with themselves, others and the earth. So what was the journey that led you to this kind of um, ethical development? How did you, how did you get fed up with um, business as usual is what we we're talking about? Yeah, thanks, Jana. <laughs> I think um, if uh, everyone's got a couple of days, I can speak the whole journey through. <laughs> but uh, I think... Uh, I came in, I've come from a trade base, from a carpentry apprenticeship and then into carpentry and so into building property and, and so on from there. So I think what I've seen the journey along the way of uh, say single homes and dwellings into multi-residential and also in the commercial space of uh, what I see is uh, a good building, good design, good connection and looking at the long goal instead of the short term goal. And I think what I've, what I've really seen is we have the built environment, which is one aspect, which is such a powerful environment for what we need as individuals and humanity itself of what we really require is, is true connection. And that true connection of community to nature and, and ultimately true connection to ourselves. So I think within the built environment, we have such a, a large responsibility of being able to provide that and giving a nurturing environment to actually bring those people together from there. So through different different projects being involved in, um, different outcomes, challenging system, and bringing those fundamental values of, of good design and, and real true connection. Um, that's really what shaped me to bring me onto the journey uh, where I am now. And also uh, really looking at, at future generations. I think to touch on the topic um, just before was, I think, we need, fundamentally, we need a cultural change. Um, and I think it's a responsibility of, of the developer as well of, uh, we generally, as a developer, we'd look at uh, the project and we look at the, a short game. We look at five years, we buy, we build, we sell, and we maximize profit in the conventional model. I think the triple and bottom line of people, planet, and profit model is, is such a good model, but I think it's the, that fundamental change of, with any project, a developer enters into also a purchaser. We need to look at 100 years plus. We need to look at this future long term of what's that going to be like for our children. And, and affordability, I think, is looking at that 
that long-term gain and then bringing in sustainability. Sustainability does equal affordability in the, in the long term. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to always ask, like there's the physical form, as you mentioned, the kind of hardware and then the software. But I, th I think I'm really interested in this idea of like form follows finance, which is a very kind of popular thing we're talking about at the moment. But if you follow Social Weaver, if you look at the Assemble model, if you look at Nightingale, all these models and you start to follow the money, you find money with good intent. And so, you know, you have, you're lucky to have people like Dave and Ben on the sort of controlling end of that um, determining the quality of the project and ensuring that it matches it. But you've also got that ability to control um, the outcome in, you know, with its impact investing. So people choosing a marginally lower uh, return on their um, investment in order to achieve outcomes for society. And the social impact investing is becoming a huge thing, particularly in the States. You can now get robo-investing apps like um, is it Swell and a bunch of other ones like that where you can put your money into these things. Um, I think it's really interesting even to think about with your supers and stuff like that, how your money goes into these things and how it actually has physical outcomes in the city. So, yeah, I really think it's interesting to look at this, this lens of where the money comes from and what kind of form that generates in the city. And I don't think we're very good at that at the moment. We sort of, we often, we talk about the architecture, we talk about the physical outcome, but one is um, sort of led by the other, I would say. Can I add to that, Yana? Uh, when you mentioned super funds, Andy, um, they're, they're a big part of the solution to more affordable housing in this country. So um, if you look at um, uh, America or Europe um, and the property portfolios of um, the pension funds over there, um, they have a significant uh, portion of their property portfolios invested directly in residential real estate. So in parts of Europe, it's you know, 20, 30, 40% um, and likewise in America. Uh, in Australia, the, the property portfolios of the super funds have zero percent of their um, investment in residential property, so they, they don't do any direct investment. Um, and overseas, it's usually in the form of built-to-rent or what's called multifamily. Can I just add to that? Some of the research mm. that we've done at Melbourne University has shown mm. that actually Australian super funds invest in affordable housing overseas. Correct. Yeah, yeah that's Be right. Um, because there's, there's, there are models, it's easier for them to do it there than here. There are no mechanisms here. Yeah, well, it's, you know, the build-to-rent market here, there's a lot of talk about it, but it's yet to really get off the ground, and it will get off the ground. I was just going to say that, I mean, there's plenty of interest from overseas pension funds to come here, particularly for, for build-to-rent. But the local build-to-rent investors are saying, you know, they want actually quite high returns. So, you know, a mate of mine, ex-developer, friend who's a fund manager saying got a client, wants to come to Australia, willing to accept 3%. Now, I've only ever heard 6% for return on build to rent in Melbourne. So I have a view that our own pension funds, um, who, you know, I know they often do wringing of the hands around housing affordability, actually still have very high expectations about returns, which at an international level is at the high end. So they'll argue it's about tax and all this sort of stuff. But I think their expectations are still um, quite high, given their, you know, it's not a, a risky sector. So. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, crazy when you think about it that the rental market in Australia is just, you know, the, we've got all these individual landlords. Um, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, institutions and developers get into that space and start offering longer-term tenure, more secure tenure, high-quality rental accommodation, um, you know, high-quality services and, and sort of list, lift the bar of rental accommodation, because that's, that's a big part of making housing more affordable as well. 
There is something quite interesting about this disaggregated model, though, of having individuals. And I was quite surprised to find this is not super uncommon in places like Germany as well. Oh, sorry. Um, it's not super uncommon in places like Germany too. And like, if you if we want to look at obviously negative gearing is the thing we haven't mentioned here, but is a significant factor that makes um, develop and dispose, which is the predominant model of development, uh, more appealing. So strong capital gains, negative gearing, um, high liquidity. You know, you can get money in and out of a development in what four or five years or something here. Um, in the Netherlands, it's like what eight or nine years or something like that. Um, but what's happening now is profit margins are dropping overall. Um, finance is not is less available. Um, the capital gains are weakening. Suddenly, this is where build to rent starts to become a more viable option. But I, th I think we shouldn't kind of give up on that ability of of bringing collect because if we look at this disaggregated model of many mums and dads or whatever you know owning property, I think maybe we can still keep this really important idea of sharing wealth creation within society, but then just adjust the filter. You know, so those people are investing into what, what is the platform and how can we use that to create quality and affordability. Um, yeah, like launch housing. What's the body that sits above launch housing? What are they called again? Oh, launch housing. Okay, so, you know, this model where people can choose to rent their property at a slightly lower rate. Um, Sorry, home ground, that's what I meant. Yeah, home ground real estate. So these types of organisations that can still share the benefit um, to their constituents, you can still have that benefit of shared wealth creation rather than hyper-concentration, but manage its negative effects in the city. Um, Dave, you have spoken about how we maybe need to rethink our idea of ownership. Um, we sort of put a lot of, we put this great sense of security into home ownership, but we here in this country define home ownership still in a really, really narrow way. So it's your piece of land, it's your detached building, you're not sharing walls, you're not sharing facilities, you know, and what happens outside is just none of your problem. We invented the strata title. <laughs> yeah. So, um... Um, with these sort of models that are now being proposed, how does that challenge our idea of what it means to be, well, of, of ownership, but also of belonging, of community? Does it force us to work together in a different way, to invest in things that we have less control of? What does it do to our value system? Yeah, I think um, the great Australian dream is to own your four-bedroom home, large manicured backyard, um, six-foot high fences around the property that's secure and safe. Um, so I think if you look at ownership in general, it's, if you go into deep depth with it, you, you own this piece of land and, and what is ownership itself? Like we're more custodians of the land and we're here for a certain time um, over our journey in life itself. So I think that, that, again, that cultural change needs to happen where instead of us looking at just owning our own little sector, our little piece, and that's ours, and we protect that from everyone else, is to knock those walls down and we share spaces, we share uh, every, each areas of communal laundry spaces, communal rooftop gardens, and, and I think that also brings into that connection point as well. We, we open ourselves up to community. We, we need people. The loneliness factor is, is huge, and I think by doing that, that, that brings us together. And that whole thing of having one piece of ownership spreads of more responsibility of custodianship uh, all together in a community. I want to take the form follows finance line on this notion of ownership. The sector that we don't have in Australia for housing, which is critical to many countries' success in affordable housing, is the co-op sector for ownership, so equity co-ops. So not Rental well, the rental co-ops are important. Australia has a very small co-op sector, which is 
are almost entirely social housing. So, and that's the problem. That's not where the vision started. It's where it went, which in some ways I think is really unfortunate. But it's what we need. And how that, so it's sharing ownership and what a co-op development does. So if you have, say, an apartment of 20 or 40 apartments, those people come together. That demand is aggregated already. So you don't have to chase the pre-sales, which is a big cost in speculative development. Though the time shrinks in that as well, which is important. But that demand is rusted on. I always describe people, when you get to choose your housing and, you know, have big input into the design and the quality and you know you're going to live there for quite a long time, you're getting married to it. So there's little likely of a divorce before, you know, you get to that point of settlement. Technically in a co-op you won't have a settlement really, but, you know, in commercial you do and that's where the big risk is and that's one of the key reasons why developers need large margins. Um, that's why they chase that. But in, in a co-op model... And Nightingale's kind of sitting down towards that end. Um, in a co-op model, you can match properly and just get it built on a contract basis. So out in the suburbs, when you build a house, you just go to the builder. And that's the thing that's keeping the price down. There's no margin, development margin in there. We can do the same thing with apartments, but it comes back to that notion of ownership where we do things cooperatively together. Just, just to sort of add to that as well when you're talking about this uh, the settlement risk idea and the, the investor versus the rusted on I think I like that it's nice um, I think it's really interesting to talk about the actual um, the thresholds for investors when they walk away so at the moment there's, there's lots of different views about what's happening in the market at the moment there's some speculation it could drop by as much as like 20% over it and oh, it changes every day um, but what's really interesting to look at, look at is if um, you know someone's invested a deposit and to buy a, an investor apartment, and if the market swings more than the value of the deposit or even less than it, you walk away because you're not going to pay compound interest on that value that you've lost at the point of completion. It's just stupid. So a smart investor behaves rationally by walking away from the deal. And it's just very different to think in that long-term time frame. If you look at the kind of tenure duration of Baugruppe projects in, in Berlin, the kind of average tenure duration is significantly longer than investor stock. And we're yet to know in Melbourne what it will be because we haven't had long enough in, in this area. Um, but people aren't making decisions based on really simplistic, um, purely rational. The, the emotion, the connection that rusted on is informing whether they, you know, stick to that uh, deposit or walk away as an investor. Well, you're going to stay rusted on because, you know, if you look at Nightingale is a good example. You get an apartment that's under market price. The quality means its value is well over market price. The differential can mean you can avoid mortgage insurance. You know, it's a fantastic deal and you're getting a quality, sustainable building, which means your living costs are going to be lower. Why would you walk away? The only reason you'd walk away is if something dreadful happened. And, and that was actually tested with the first Nightingale project where one of the buyers rang up from India three weeks out from settlement and said, I'm getting a divorce. I cannot possibly buy this apartment. Nightingale, because it had the list, the list which is now over 5,000 people, just went straight back to the list, just a single email and said, anyone interested in buying this apartment, you have to put a deposit down today and you have to settle in three weeks. They had 11 people, went bang, I'll do it. Having that list, that aggregated demand, de-risks the projects really, really substantially and that was, you know, a clincher for the social pact 
investors who came into the deal. They understood that it de-risked the project. And the outcome of that is that they went, okay, yes, we agree with you that in a future project we would be very interested to discuss with you putting more of the money up so that, you know, initially they were only putting up 70% of the funds. They were saying, yeah, we will look at putting 90% up because when you switch that debt to equity ratio on a, on a financing deal, it brings the costs down substantially. So financing costs are significant. So it's not the cost of the debt per se, it's the cost of the equity that goes into the projects when you have to get some external equity investors. And modelled on Nightingale One, you know, it was like $100,000 per apartment. So, you know, everyone recognised it was a goal to go for and that's one of the reasons why Nightingale have now got the Urbau, which is the Urbau model, which is the Balgruppen model. Mm. So. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting talking about uh, the differences between Nightingale One and subsequent projects. And, um, for example, even on um, the Commons, I think um, Bonnie Herring in particular's work in eliminating unnecessary services and materials and things like that, I think the figure was 250000 was saved on the build from elimination. And you can save 100000 per apartment <laughs> by changing the finance model. I think it's, it's been the biggest lesson is that you know, we're, we're all taught in architecture, an architecture by background, we're taught in architecture school, you know, save, save on the cost of construction, you'll make affordability. Well, within a speculative model, that money is just passed on to the um, investor or passed on to the, the developer. So if we look at something like unitized building, um, prefabricated construction can save a lot of the cost of construction, but all it does is passes that affordability, that you know, that differential in cost, onto windfall profit. But even worse, it then means when the site next door sells, it sells on the assumption of an inflated profit and has to build cheaper to make it work, and you get this kind of rolling effect. So yeah, the finance cost thing is a huge lesson in, in the last five years. I think uh, to it too. Um that equity portion we're finding from an impact investment field and through education and values-driven investment, we're finding of what, say, if it was a, a MES or equity finance, um, from how high it's been in the past and how far it's pulling down as well because investors, impact investors, want to put their money where their values are. And I think we're seeing that as a, a really, really uplifting cultural shift in that investment market as well. And that obviously helps the project dramatically. Ben, do you have any sort of stories to share about Assemble? Uh, yeah, I suppose um, uh, yeah, with, with the Assemble model, um, for those that aren't familiar with it, it's um, rather than selling off the plan, we're offering a, a five-year lease and then the option to buy the apartment at the end of the five years for a price that's agreed today. So um, it's kind of a you know, halfway between a sort of off-the-plan and a build-to-rent model. Um, but with, with that model, Yana, we're taking sort of an eight to nine year view and we're taking, um, you know, equity returns which are less than half that of the off-the-plan approach. So, um, you know, by doing that, it's, it's um, providing a, you know, a pathway to home ownership um, for those people that <laughs> want to take it up. Um, but, yeah, there's no doubt that lower, more patient um, equity returns are a key part of making things more affordable. Um, and, you know, with all these different models like Nightingale and Balgruppen and um, what small giants are doing, um, there'll be more that come. I, I think it's, you know, having a, a range of these alternative models um, addressing different different needs. And the other thing is that, you know, we, we can't ignore, you know, construction costs are, you know, the biggest cost in a project. Um, the more technology and um, you know, timber construction, modular construction that can help to reduce that, um, 
that's going to go a long way to helping improve affordability as well. But importantly, within a capped profit situation, because I guess, yeah, as, as I'm saying, like prefabrication, cost reduction in construction is only passed on to the purchasers if, you know, um, you're in an environment like Assemble where... If they are the developer. Well, if they are the developer or if the developer ex is happy to pass on that saving because it's an ethical developer or the social impact yes, and, and I think it. that's one of the future changes that will happen is as we can address the risks, particularly around settlement, it gives the opportunity, therefore, you know, if you want to create stickiness with your pre-sale buyers, you offer them something that they want and you can share some of the... Um, the savings that are made with them, then that will increase the stickiness of those buyers, which reduces your risk. So it becomes a virtual circle for them. So key things for the industry really are about embracing, you know, the, the lessons from Uber and Airbnb, which is aggregation membership-based platforms to bring your customers in to know who they are. Over, t you can hold them over time, that where the people can, you know, click on I'm I'm look now looking to buy or. or even extend to build rent. I, I'm wanting to a quality, you know, affordable apartment. So they can get those customers and build to those customers and share the rewards with them. And I think it would go from a speculative model to a fee-for-service model, which should bring down the cost and up the design and quality. I've got a um, bit of a different view, Andy, on construction costs and where those savings are passed on, if there are any. I think like the, the development market is highly competitive. Um, there's just so many developers in this city and it's so hard to find land at a reasonable price and, you know, sales off the plan are getting harder and harder. Um, you know, I think if there is technology that helps to reduce construction costs, um, uh, you know, in a competitive market, that should be reflected in, in sales, in lower sales rates. And I just think it, it is so hard to actually get projects pre-sold at the moment with this invested demand drying up that, you know, if, if there are savings that are made that, you know, in, in a competitive market, they should in some way be passed on to, to purchases. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in the current climate because the, the sort of case study I'm referring to, was there an example in Sandringham? I think it was like Bay Street Sandringham or something like that where there was a UB building and a couple of others nearby. And it was the construction savings, the, the primary impact they were having on the um, project uh, the, the pie chart, if you want to call it, was on land. Yep. So it was changing, it was meaning you could be competitive to pay more for land if your build costs were down rather than influencing the price. But that's, I don't know, six, seven years ago, that was in a you know, super speculative market. Yep. Now it might be different. Yep. Um, so we have these amazing kind of world, very innovative globally um, ap approaches in ethical market-led housing. Um, but what is the role of the state? Um, my sense is that we've got such incredible initiative coming from the private sector because the public sector has just um, completely decided not to get involved in housing, and this has been going on for some time. Well, it is involved in housing. That's really a big part of the problem. I mean, federally, with taxation, it's huge. You know, like, they influence it enormously. That's what I mean about man-made. They're making decisions. What's interesting is from the bottom up, you know, we're all deciding something else needs to happen to resolve a critical problem, which is largely about the inner city problem. So it's about us deciding that we have to do it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I'd like to sort of maybe shift the conversation a little bit and talk about other parts of the housing market, so social, um, somewhat subsidised, fully subsidised housing. Andy, um, you have done quite a lot of research on alternative housing models. In fact, some of Andy's research is in the current Assemble papers. We've worked on that together. And one thing that was quite interesting to me from looking at all of these different models is that the, there's... Government funding is often, um, is almost always there. Uh, sometimes it fully funds projects, sometimes it partially funds them, and sometimes it subsidizes them with long-term kind of peppercorn leases and similar stuff. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. your conclusions from your research? Well, I have been waiting for Andrea's rebuttal or critique of that article, so I'll, I'll stay tuned for that once she's had a copy of it. Um, yeah, so uh, Catherine, who will be speaking in the next panel, <laughs> and I have been doing this research for the last few years. I think even some of our students are here who came with us. Um, but we've been, it's, it's amazing, you find, we've been talking about this idea that we, we find oddities in an environment, we find development that has generosity, that is not business as usual, and we try and understand the preconditions that enable it. And you will know this, Jan has many backgrounds, including working for the European Commission at one point, around circular economy grants and all sorts of, I find something new every time. Um, but you can just find seed finance from some obscure European financier somewhere in every project. Like, you see this project and you're like, oh wow, this one's funded entirely by the community, there's no government input. Shit, there's like, you know, they've been guarantor or they've provided a subsidy for environmental performance. And they're often really small amounts, but they're enough to be catalysts. Um, one project that's got me thinking, I, I, this might be a slight tangent, but it might not be, we'll see. Um, there's a project I'm slightly obsessed with at the moment called DRIEC, or the Triangle, in Zurich. Um, and it's a project that kind of has all the components of housing affordability and opportunities for th rethinking about pulling down fences and rethinking the suburbs all in kind of one block. And it's a, a cooperative housing model in Zurich. Zurich, what we've really learned in recent years, we were all looking at Germany, all looking at Balgrupa, and what's becoming more and more, uh, what we're becoming more aware of is that this 30% deposit for Balgrupa makes it a middle class or upper middle class phenomena. Um, it's becoming increasingly less interesting in Berlin because it's for the elite. Um, and it's finding it hard to compete now that Berlin is absolutely booming in terms of speculative development. Turn to Zurich, Zurich is absolutely killing it. Um, and a number of Swiss cities are through their, their cooperative models. And the way in which the government supports them, so, um, often it'll be through um, the reservation of land, which is a common one we often talk about. It's a bit of a, a bit difficult to look at the Melbourne context, particularly I know you know for City of Melbourne we have very limited land reserves, and we need to put things like childcare and medical centres, and we're not going to put housing on our land because we just need it for more important things than housing. But at a, if you start to look at a state level and Vic Track and um, Vic Roads, and you start to see you find more land. So this so this allocation of land in the case of Driac, you had land that was meant to be a freeway. They protested. Um, citizen activism led to it not being built. You then had they squatted the site um, and developed a kind of cooperative structure in order to purchase the land off the government. Um, they paid a fair market price at that point off the government, but they were biased with tender criteria. So there's a tool. Tender criteria immediately biasing um, ethical development outcomes, certain environmental performances, whatever that is. Um, that's kind of step number one. Um, step number two is that the city of Zurich guarantees the finance for cooperatives. They don't put money in, they use their AAA credit rating to say, hey, you know what, we'll back you because you're low risk. Cooperatives in Zurich operate on a 69 year times basis. 
It's not based on ownership. Well, it is a kind of collective ownership, but uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's not. It, it, it's corporate. Yeah, it's cooperative ownership. People effectively pay a rental, but it's it's different to sort of renting off a um, you know a typical build to rent model. Andrew will be able to explain it better. But um, so you look at a t 69 year time scale of the cost of construction. You work out your monthly rent backwards from that and it stays the same for 69 years. So you might pay around about market rate now or sub you know, profit margin, cost of construction. Then in the future, you've got the curve of this, that you've got the city's kind of you know, market going up, particularly in Zurich, super hot city in terms of the, the property market. But all the while, these cooperatives are kind of going down relative to the rest of the market. So your housing is becoming increasingly affordable over time. So the levers there of um, competitive tender criteria, supporting the cooperatives through backing their finance, um, and then professional assistance at key points in the stage in order to kickstart it. They're things that we could do without having to have government fully fund the projects. So you can see how those little levers can become really significant. From the development side of the panel, do you have ideas on how the state could um, support the models that you're pioneering? Because these are amazing models, but we have an incredibly large shortage of affordable housing in the state. So according to some uh, calculations, we need something like 164,000 um, new dwellings just in the next few years, of which about half have to be affordable affordable to everybody and a very decent amount need to be affordable to our people on very low incomes. So this is not the sort of this is not a sort of problem that can be solved with isolated um, innovative approaches. This really requires for a kind of scaling up. So what would help scale up these good ideas? I think I, th I think one area is is for for us in development is planning risk. So we, we go in, we look at a site, and we've got this planning risk, which all comes down to, to timing. End of the day, I think there's definitely ways that state can incentivise for the models, so Nightingale at Assemble and, and what we do as well to reduce that planning risk to fast track and incentivisation of um, a key criteria of what is going to be for good and affordable housing for the community. I think that's definitely a a real incentive that would help dramatically in that space. And it comes to that affordability. If, if we can fast track from time, time is cost. So if we can reduce, that makes it significant change. Can I add to that? Um, so I'm often involved in the writing of planning legislation effectively, and, and this is a, a real interest of mine, is how we um, use planning tools. And we've had since really the Kennett era, um, a planning system that was designed for a recession, really. Um, it was transformed in 1997 and 99, and it very much um, flipped to a model that was about um, development initiative and then a sort of reactive um, government. And we still not haven't you know we're trying to adjust our planning tools constantly, but we haven't reconceptualised what the role of the planning system is and what its key deliverables are. It sounds so stupid to talk about it like that, but that's essentially what it is. And so we're still now in a kind of boom context using a planning system that um, is intentionally vague. And so rather than using a tool like in Sydney that they use, like a floor area ratio tool that sets the floor area on a site, you know, let's say you've got a thousand square metre site, 
um, and you're allowed a three to one floor area ratio, you know you're only going to be able to build 3,000 square metres of floor area. You can then compete over the quality and how you can innovate within that, but you're not forced to be up against cowboy developers. You know, you put Assemble or you put um, small giants up against, uh, I'm not going to name names, but you put it against a major development company who's willing to take a risk they can get two more stories. There's no way you can compete to buy that site. You just wouldn't. And, so, and, and more yeah. importantly, when you, when you have these more um, prescriptive planning regimes, it means that the underlying land value, you, that the speculation that goes, because yes. that's what happens with our Kenneth-era system here, totally. is you can go for an extra 10 storeys. It's, it's not even two. <laughs> so, of course, the landowners, they know that all gets capitalised into the price of land. Yeah. And that's very, very problematic. Well, this is a really important point about... Pl Sorry, Ben, do you go? No, I, uh, I was just going to say... Um, one of the downsides of that kind of approach to planning is that, you know, the developer that buy the, buys a site if the planning outcome is known is probably the developer that thinks that they can sell it for the most and build it for the cheapest. And, you know, that's, that's not necessarily a great outcome either. Um, so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but to be fair, you know, Macaulay Road Assemble project, you've bought it at the bought it at the right time, but you've got a fixed planning envelope. Effectively, you've yep. got not a. I can't say that actually. I'm City of Melbourne. Um, <laughs> not the best planning control in the world. You know, base it comes from an era of thinking about um, planning controls as a kind of image-based idea of streets, rather than thinking about form and volume and um, kind of function of a building and I think we're increasingly, if you look at the West Melbourne structure plan, if you're a total nerd, um, I think that's in my view probably the best structure plan in Melbourne at the moment in terms of thinking about the interior and the building within that context. So first of all you need the tool that ascribes value to land effectively um, rather than sort of abstracting the two concepts and then you need performance criteria which reflects and incentivizes the quality and within that you can start to use bonuses in a really clever way so if there is a certain kind of program which might deal with software you know if they think of um, the relationship that's being built with the Collingwood Arts Precinct um, or Creative Arts Precinct as they're called now with Marcus Westbury and assemble these these kind of value add propositions become bonusable items and these bonusable items really are compensating for market failure to deliver that under the normal operation of, of not, you don't believe in normal operation of the market, though, because you think it's all constructed in the segments, but we can talk about that. Um, the, the business as usual, let's say, of, of the primary form of development. So these bonus items then start to put ethical developers in the box seat for these sites because it doesn't become a race to the bottom of construction cost and optimisation. Yeah. Yana, another way that the government can help is through... Um that they obviously own huge parcels of land and in some cases are divesting that land and, um, you know, having um, broader criteria than just price um, in divesting that land. So, you know, some of the ideas that Andy's just mentioned, if they could also be incorporated into, you know, how government runs its tenders and in divesting land, then maybe that would end up in the hands of more ethical developers as well. And they're doing it in other cities. So Landcorp... Uh, I hope our development Victoria, if anyone here is from there, can learn from, from some of our neighbours. And, you know, Landcorp as part of their uh, enabling act basically has to deliver an innovative project every year. And some of the projects, I don't know if anyone's been to Nutsford. Obviously, Kath, you have because you were there with me. Um, but it, Nutsford and some of these projects they're delivering, they're the best state-led projects in the country. They're showing this kind of suburban model of super sustainable, high-quality density. It's really amazing. 
but they're also putting in, through Geoffrey London's work um, and Space Agency, they're doing a Balgrupa project. And you've got this kind of desire for government and Fremantle City Council also looking to support these types of projects. Canberra also has a kind of commitment to investigate these types of projects. Now, um, I forget the Sydney equivalent. What's it called? Urban... No, 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 no. What's the state government agency for development in Sydney? Is it Landcorp as well? Landcorp. Whatever it is, Landcom. They're also now looking in, in major urban renewal precincts at how they can integrate in these sorts of models, if not as a primary element, as a kind of smaller component. And there's something really interesting in there for government that gets beyond this just this question of getting the generosity out of it. You can flip it at... You can't gesticulate and talk and hold your Sorry. microphone can at you the same time. Can you hear me? Time. Or not really? <laughs> okay. Um, Lost my train of thought. So, so gov government can reconceptualise what these types of models do. So first of all, there's the affordability, there's the quality, that's a given, right? But there's also the pioneer quality. And I put this question to a group of people the other night at a talk and said, who of you would go and live in Fisherman's Bend in a 60-storey residential tower? Actually, maybe, put hands up if you would. No one? Who would go and live in Fisherman's Bend in a cooperative housing development that you had to say over the design of and maybe it was six or eight levels? point proven, right? So how can you take these types of models and put them into districts that are undesirable and create instant communities that can drive the rest of the development? Makes sense, right? <laughs> um, one of the things, just speaking about land disposal, yes, the state government has a special agency to sell off the land and that's one of the ways they're underpinning their budget. Because in cities like New York, they don't sell any of their land. They use ground leases. And ground leases is another tool to get the kind of development that you want. And there was a really good article in The Age today about the, the man who runs New York's parks, talking about how they got good development plus open space through the use of betterment tools that are underpinned by their ground lease controls. Um, I just want to add, so I've been doing a little bit of research on the city of Vienna, which is now the most livable city in the world. And it's a very wealthy city in a very wealthy country. And it's also a city in which three out of five people live in social housing. Or common, yeah. Um, but this is the most beautiful housing that you have ever seen. And uh, when you go through it, it's got the sort of the sigil of the city of Vienna on it. And we'll have, there'll be this big sign saying, you know, city of Vienna architects or architectural departments. It's pretty much, it's absolutely very obviously a point of civic pride, this kind of construction. And that's because it is seen as a priority, it's seen as important. It's also historically has been seen as uh, the opportunity for design research. So the city puts a little bit of money towards really important architects looking into innovative construction, in, in interesting social mix, family structure, dwelling structure, um, urban design, open spaces, um, and something is learned with each project. I. I don't think that we will look at public housing that we're building today as a kind of, wow, I was proud to be alive <laughs> during this oh, time. Come, come on, surely you look at the Living Carlton project as a <laughs> globally competitive. Well, we're not, we're not building public housing. That's yeah. really the point. There's hardly mm. any that's come on since the GFC. Yeah. We, we don't have a commitment to it in this country at all, really. Um, it is very much question time. We've been talking and talking. Um, should we give a microphone? Maybe not. Maybe just... Am I allowed to add a really little point on Vienna? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, just, I think... Can I? Yeah. It's a really interesting point. Kath and I have been talking about this a lot, this idea of cities that have had 
housing as a critical component of the infrastructure for a long period of time. And if you look at um, a lot of European cities right now that are kind of doing incredibly well and maintaining equity in their city for a range of people, it's you look at the way they responded to the Industrial Revolution and you look at the way they responded to the, the Great Depression. It sounds really obscure, but you look at the way Melbourne... De so to cut it short, basically they built housing for people, set standards and make it amazing. And so they kept this kind of proportion of housing for people. They conceptualised their Residential Tenancies Act around protecting tenants against slum landlords. What did Melbourne, what did Australia do in 1890 and 1930? We gave Crown land grants on the edge of the city or rural areas to get underemployed people out of the city so they wouldn't protest. Our solution to concentration and poverty was dispersal. You have to see our current housing process as a hundred-year legacy of thinking like this. That's the difference with Vienna and Melbourne. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, questions? I'm not an architect <laughs> or a town planner. Um, I do have a health background. I'm intrigued at the, was it 69, 89-year lease um, conversation and whether anyone's done any economics around the government actually instead of giving a rental assistance as part of its um, social housing responsibilities for people on low incomes or middle incomes or whatever, whether there's been any thought to putting to government that they involve themselves in that end of the purchase and the development and hopefully with some of the, the beauty and, and all those things that engage one's heart and soul uh, so that it's sort of known for government rather than the, at the moment, you get less than what's needed to rent. And so we have entrenched poverty within people who may be able to pull themselves through that. Um, so it's twisting it to the back end so that government is actually assured of what its rental responsibility will be in social housing environment. Does that make sense? Is that a question? So... Just not quite sure what the question is. So the... My question is... Are you, sorry, are you talking about social housing yes. or private rental? No, no, I'm, at the moment, if you're on a low income, yeah. people get a rental assistance. Yeah, so okay. rental yeah. assistance, yeah. yeah. And that then private market is where you have to go to actually rent. My question is, has anyone done any of the economics if you flip it around and the government, instead of giving rental assistance down the, the long term, whether they put that up front and invest in the building and, and the knowledge that their rent cost is going to be X known for 60-odd years. Has anyone done any economics and put that to government as a policy? There's, there's some. There's some. I mean, that, that's the sort of arguments around shared equity. So there's been lots of work from New Zealand where they've, they did a huge sort of transformative way of thinking about how you invest in communities and in individuals. So, and you're in the homelessness space, what that said is, oh, if we stop that young person leaving care, being homeless, and invest in them at that point, that will save us this many millions of dollars down. So that, that thinking is permeated through the New Zealand policy making. And that, that is of real interest here. But somehow, you know, we... Uh, we have this other, you know, narrative which I think dominates us, which is, you know, when it's meant to be small government. You know, that sits really at the basis of a lot of the discussion today is our governments think they cannot spend. 
They think they have to be low taxing, low spending. And that cuts off a, a huge amount of great opportunities for them. You know, Zurich is a rich city, rich country. And yet that, they're spending, you know. It wasn't always, but... Maybe, so in a different but similar space, um, homelessness and sort of people that are chronically homeless have been one of the areas in which Housing First has been a very successful model. Uh, so as part of the research for this issue of Assemble Papers, our assistant editor, Kat, who introduced uh, the symposium this morning, she interviewed uh, Juha Kakinen from Finland's Y Foundation. Uh, y Foundation pioneered a uh, what's called Housing First, which is basically for people who are homeless, you give them you, you give them a home, and then you do everything else. So we currently have this model where uh, homeless people basically have to earn their right to housing by not you know by um, fulfilling lots of other criteria. And in Finland, where they come to it from a completely different perspective, which is that um, societies need to take care of their most vulnerable people. Um, they have reformed their entire um, homelessness support sector to basically provide really high, really quite high quality housing with lots of services that are optional, they're opt-in. So you're not penalized for not participating. And that has been really, really successful. They have reduced their sort of emergency shelters to something like, well, no, something like 50 beds in the whole country. Um, and now they have lots of dedicated um, housing for different types. So this is where it comes back to your question. Um, you have told us that they even have a whole building for musicians. Um, so that musicians who obviously don't earn um, a lot of money from their um, profession have a safe place to live. He said to us, not everybody can be like your Courtney Barnett. <laughs> it was very sweet. Um, thanks to everybody. It's been very interesting so far. I have a question about measurement and really interested in the panel's thoughts on how you can or techniques you've seen for measuring the, uh, the lived experience of being in an apartment or a house um, over time and whether you can tell if it's a good lived experience or a less good lived experience. The context for this question is my background's in software, and we think a lot about the measurement of the effectiveness of the products that we build, and there are a lot of tools for doing that really fast, and it actually becomes the drumbeat, if you like, of the organization, the software company that you're building. And so I'm just wondering if, in the context of the built environment, if you've seen, um, any people implement that or uh, any research you've come across in that, in that area? Yeah, it's a huge thing. I'll be really interested in talking to you later about that. Around Nightingale, we've, um, a number of universities have established a research collaboration. Of course, one of the key things everyone's really interested in is will, will the experience of living in these particular apartments be somehow different from, you know, the speculative product and people living in that. It's it's such a complex thing to unpick, though. So you can get, you know, objective measurements about the quality, you know, the, the energy efficiency, you know, whether you feel warm, you know, secure, all those sorts of things, the air quality. 
that oh, there's so much that's subjective and people's feelings and views change over time. So it'd have to be longitudinal, vastly expensive, <laughs> vastly expensive exercise to do. But really, really interesting. And I'm kind of interested in what ways we can engage with people over the longer term, which reduces the burden around asking them questions. Because the commons, people have already stopped answering questions. They were, like, they were over-surveyed. Nightingale people, Nightingale one have already kind of, kind of reaching a threshold. So, and Balgroup and I understand, you know, some of the early Balgroup and projects, they don't want to talk to people either. So, there's a real challenge in getting to a clear understanding. Yeah, and I see there to be a huge role for technology. Like, I mean, it depends on which... You're very much talking about that kind of qualitative lived experience. Um, but in terms of kind of metric data on performance, you were mentioning um, Arup did some work with um, the Commons. I know, you know, Pete Steele, who's a really um, prolific uh, sustainability kind of guru in Melbourne, um, environmental engineer or planner, I forget exactly what it is, but he's got sensors all over his apartments in the Commons and has been working with other projects to do similar things. Nightingale One has sensors throughout. There's a study on Nightingale One now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is the Project Home project. Does anyone know about that? Um, I think the idea sort of was developed with RMIT and Leanne Hoddle when she was at the City of Melbourne as a way of doing work that we couldn't do in-house because it was quite politicised, but um, having external parties do this work to give us quantitative data around apartments. And so Project Home is a big RMIT, it's read by uh, Ralph Horn, I think his name is, from RMIT. Um, and they're doing a huge kind of um, study of apartments across Australia and looking at the quality and interviews to build this kind of database of information about it, which is a, a really kind of interesting example. A another kind of historical example that's super cool is, does anyone know the Parker Morris report? We just, I was just really looking at this the other day. Does anyone know about this? Not really. Um, so it was a huge study of kind of... Um, public housing built in the UK in the 1950s or 1960s and it went into like every building, documented it, used architecture students. A lot of the performance criteria we use now in things like SEP 65 or the Greater London Authority's kind of housing code actually originate from this Parker Morris report about how much space is required per person. Um, how, you know, how many flushing toilets and all these facilities and they've kind of ramped up and the, the whole concept at the time was that people's living standards have increased, therefore we need to re-evaluate the way we do public housing. And that report is a kind of incredible basis to look at now with new tech. How could we kind of do this in a kind of rapid feedback way that's not invasive in people's lives to provide this information to improve housing delivery? Oscar, I think um, we'll find a, a greater role for technology um, to try and address those, some of those things as, as the build-to-rent market um, establishes itself here and other sort of um, models like the Assemble model and Nightingale because, you know, the, the, the off-the-plan model was, you know, you put down your 10%, you settle or you don't. If you settle, you get the keys and that's it. But when you've got a development model where, you know, there's a longer time frame, you know, 9, 10 years, suddenly, you know, the developers um, got a lot more incentive to understand, well, actually how is this community performing and what does this community actually think? And, you know, the investment, the capital into building that technology, you know, probably does need to come from the developer. Um, and so I think there'll be great opportunities. Um, as, uh, sorry? You're doing an app, aren't you, for the assembly model? Yeah, yeah, well, we, um, we've got a partnership with um, Resilient Melbourne, which is um, 
uh, from the 1,000 city, Resilient Cities uh, program funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And um, through that, we've got a partnership with the University of Melbourne and uh, they're going to look at the Kensington project, the, the first one under the Assemble model um, from start to finish. Um, so that's a, that's a research in, initiative and we will start to look at you know, digital tools um, over the coming years as well. Um, um, is it? Yeah. Um, we actually get approached, I get approached quite a lot by um, people who want to measure our buildings. So maybe come and chat with us afterwards. And interestingly, I was at Arup just the other day and I was told that they are doing, they're measuring acoustics with, uh, at Nightingale, I think. And very interestingly, they said, you know, we have this amazing technology where we can measure, we can sort of reproduce acoustics, so we can actually walk you through your future apartment and how it's going to sound. It's just that no one except breed architecture wants to do it because, no, <laughs> because developers don't actually want you to know how bad the acoustics will be in your future apartment. Um, we have time for one more question. talked about uh, cost and affordability, but also about um, amenity and, and quality of apartments and things. And I think um, Melbourne had a bit of a bad rep for a while of building some poor apartments, you know, things without bedrooms, without windows and, and those sorts of things. Um, and I think the state government tried to uh, improve that with the better apartment guidelines. Um, and I think planning has a bit of a difficult role in trying to manage affordability but also amenity and quality. Um, so I wanted to know if the panel had any thoughts on the impact that BADS had had on cost. We should also acknowledge one of our BADS champions standing up the back here, who spent the last term of government fighting for all things housing. Um, <laughs> I think BADS has been really interesting to see the impact of that. I can only speak from a City of Melbourne perspective um, and somewhat from a Nightingale perspective, but um, BADS has really... A, a lot of projects that were approved prior to BADS that hadn't yet secured finance, when they went to market, they got really nervous about building things that weren't BADS compliant. Because if you start delivering a project at the same cost as someone else, that's not BADS compliant compared to BADS compliant, it's less desirable. Um, I think also a lot of the media around the BADS was super effective in kind of informing cons consumers, um, people, um, but also, you know, investors around what is a good and bad apartment. I think there's a huge kind of, like, when we talk about this maturing market and, you know, we're starting from a low base, but I think we've, the, all the media around the BADS was almost as effective as the tool itself, is my view. I, no one in old permits that are trying to recut them now wants to build buildings that aren't BADS compliant because they just can't sell them. So what we've seen is with this, in, and I'll be quoting heavily from Andrea's delivering affordable, um, affordability, uh, delivery to speculative project, but effectively you've, you've got this situation where investors have a very stratified series of layers of what they'll spend on an apartment. And there are some factors that will um, differentiate that in terms of quality or size or things like that. But what you see is this immense standardisation of certain apartment types. And that price point needs to be highly competitive because you're competing with thousands of other apartments at the same time. And so the effect of BADS really, and any effective planning control, is a downward one on land values when the site then sells. So we talk about planning, uh, the cost of a planning control 
on t in terms of current landowner, but then we talk about it in terms of the next landowner. And if, if the planning control is well-framed, it should just impact land value and not on the, on the cost. So th I don't believe there is any significant evidence out there to suggest that BADS has increased the cost across the board of, of certainly investor-oriented apartments. Um, this is all we have time for now. Um, our next panel is going to be 60 minutes of discussing apartment design. <laughs> so come back here at 11.45.50 um, for that conversation. Can I just get you to join me in thanking our fantastic panelists? You are listening to the first of four panels for Assemble Papers Living Close Together Symposium. Stick around for part two. What makes a good apartment building? 